Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Thursday, May the 4th, 2023. Some stories, so to speak, won't die, or perhaps they die too much. A little more than a year ago, uh, I had a, I think she's a Wall Street Journal reporter, Catherine Sayre on the show. Uh, she co-wrote a book called Happy at Any Cost, The Revolutionary Vision and Fatal Quest of Zappos CEO Tony Say. Um, a story about life and particularly death of, of this uh, extremely rich, tragic, miserable uh, head founder of Zappos. A uh, remarkable man for his misery and for his championship of the idea of happiness and his association with Zappos, which he successfully sold to Amazon. Uh, we are back with this story, which seems to be a metaphor in many ways, I think, of the moral crisis or collapse or emptiness of technology in Silicon Valley. We have another book out about Tony Say. It's called Wonder Boy, uh, Tony Say Zappos and the Myth of Happiness in Silicon Valley. Once again, it's co-written by two top tech journalists, Angel Ao Yong and David Jeans. They're both joining us. And perhaps, um, Angel, let's start with you. In terms of this book, I mean, obviously, you know about Catherine's book. What, what are you adding that Catherine uh, didn't put into her book, Happy at Any Cost? What, why does this story need to be told again? Well, I think when we started on this book, we really wanted this to be the definitive biography of Tony Shea. So not just a focus on the last year of his life um, or perhaps only his successes, but really starting from the very beginning up to the point of when his parents immigrated um, from Taiwan to the States. Um, I think for us, a lot of the news stories that came out, including ours, really focused on the events of 2020 um, that led to Tony's passing. But for us, we were always interested in what led up to the point where, um, what led up to the inflection point where Tony's life changed. Um, and one big question that we always wanted to answer was how could a tragedy like this have happened to somebody like Tony? Um, and so in order to answer that question, we, we also have to tell the reader who this person was before the success, before he became a millionaire uh, 30 times over. You talk about a tragedy, Angel. Not everyone listening or watching will be familiar with the Tony Say story. Very briefly, explain what you mean by this tragedy. Um, well, Tony Shea passed away too soon. Um, he was a beloved tech figure, um, beloved in a way that we have observed tech billionaires not to be beloved in this day and age. I mean, you think about the, the type of uh, criticisms and hatred that uh, Elon Musk receives. Tony was very different from that kind of a tech, tech successful entrepreneur. He was really beloved by his community, um, by his friends. And um, it, it was really in late 2019 where his life started to change. 
Um, and again, our book explores what exactly changed that led him to start exploring with certain types of drugs, um, ketamine, nitrous oxide, which led him to a drug-induced psychosis for the, for the last year of his life. Um, and then a series of unfortunate events happened that led to um, his death. Uh, you talk about his death. Did, did he commit suicide? It's still, to me, a little unclear. In your mind, did he end his own life or was it just an accident? Well, in our minds, we don't believe he intentionally committed suicide. Um, in the investigation's report of the accident, they were unable to rule out suicide as one of the causes of his death, but they also listed three other theories that they had. Um, and based on our reporting, we don't believe it was a suicide. Let's bring in um, David. David's based uh, in Brooklyn, Angel in San Francisco. So they're on the two sides, the two coastal sides of the country. Uh, David, the subtitle of the book is um, Tony Say, Zappos and the Myth of Happiness in Silicon Valley. Is this, uh, and, and as Angel said, you wanted to write the definitive book about Say, is this uh, uh, a parable of, of everything that's gone wrong in Silicon Valley and tech with wealth and fame and mental illness and drug addiction? So I think, I think Tony Shea really was in Silicon Valley at the time when everything was taking off in, you know, an unprecedented way. You know, he sold his first company in Silicon Valley, you know, in the late nineties at the age of 24 for uh, $265 million. So he was there as, you know, Silicon Valley was, you know, minting millionaires left, right and center. And as a result of that, we saw a lot of companies like Google and, and Microsoft and others come out with what was called, you know, the sort of golden handcuffs where employees could get, you know, their free lunches and all of their, you know, workplaces were about, um, you know, making sure that everyone was looked after. And I think that when Tony came in uh, with Zappos, he wanted to double and triple down on that theory and make sure that his employees could be as happy as possible. And that meant that there was costume parades through the offices. That meant that there was a focus on bringing your personal life into your work life. That meant that there was, um, you know, all sorts of perks and, you know, things hanging from the walls that all, in essence, meant happiness and fun. I think what we learned as Tony's story progressed and as he grew older and ventured into new things was that the sort of focus on happiness that he had created actually left little room to also acknowledge the reality of um, the realities of life, which often comes with sadness and you know other other experiences that we have, and it actually created an unhealthy balance. Um, you know, in some of the other ventures that he created. Um, so I think that when we talk about the myth of happiness in Silicon Valley, there was, there did seem a period in, in time when everything just seemed about making money and making everyone happier and making, you know, a, a sort of corporate culture that wasn't there before. And Tony was there to write the initial rule box, rule books of, of e-commerce even. I mean, Amazon was adopting, um, you know, different processes and and, um, and works from from Zappos and, you know, had much larger impact there. But what we've seen is, that, 
in especially in the last decade is that this sort of focus on happiness has sort of given way to a realization that what a lot of tech companies and what a lot of Silicon Valley has been doing hasn't necessarily happiness is sort of served as a cover for other work that it's been doing. And I think that it's, it's, it's definitely accurate to say that some of Tony's life was a metaphorical parallel to what occurred in Silicon Valley. Angel, um, tell me a little bit about Tony's background from the book. You suggest that uh, he, he was pushed very hard as a, as a young child and he was always trying to make somebody else happy, perhaps rather than himself. What was his background? And, and again, what's the, the parable here in trying to make sure that we don't have more Tony says in the future? Well, I think that Tony's upbringing is actually really relatable for a lot of first generation immigrant families. Um, Tony's parents went from Taiwan to the States and the majority of people who made that immigration path, they're looking for a better future, not just for themselves, but for their families, future families. And when your story is that, as soon as you're born in America, you understand the sacrifices that your parents made for you. Um, and with Richard and Judy, again, I think that their parenting was actually very... And these were his parents, Richard and Richard Judy. Richard and Judy were Tony's parents. Um, and they had a very strict curriculum for their three children, including Tony. Um, they expected a lot from them. They expected high academic performance. Um, they expected uh, high performance and extracurriculars, um, violin, piano, um, and they wanted their children to do their best and be best at what they did. Um, and I think what's so interesting about Tony's story is that he talks about his childhood in his book, um, Delivering Happiness. And what, what was so interesting in reporting that was the differences between how he presented his childhood and his perspective versus what we heard from people who knew him back then. Um, in his book, he almost had kind of a nonchalant perspective on um, academic success. Um, it seemed like everything just kind of came to him very easily. He was able to skirt by, um, skirt the rules and make shortcuts to do well in school. Um, so to the reader, it seems that, you know, Tony was always naturally smart, which he was, and everything was really easy for him. But we spoke to some of his childhood friends. I'm thinking of one source in particular who told me that, um, who told us that, you know, Tony had, he got a, a, a not A grade in a French class um, in fourth or the fifth grade. And Tony was so upset by it. And the friend was so surprised by how upset Tony was. Um, so I think that's that little anecdote kind of shows you how much pressure Tony felt even from such a young age. Um, and there were also a lot of expectations on him. I mean, not just from his parents, he won most likely to succeed in middle school. Um, and there was always this other quality to him growing up. Um, he was an outlier, not just intellectually, but also racially. He grew up in Northern California at a time in a suburb that was majority white. He was really one of very few Asian, uh, Asian children, they were one of very few Asian families in the area. Um, so there was always this other quality to him and always this pressure to succeed. Um, and that was really what Tony's upbringing was like. 
Uh, you mentioned uh, Angel, uh, his book, Delivering Happiness, a huge bestseller, ironically enough, still sold on Amazon where he sold his own company, uh, has almost 6,000 ratings. Um, David, did you use Delivering Happiness to try to figure out Tony? He's a riddle. Um, and I guess your book is an attempt to, uh, to, to see through that riddle, to figure it out. Where did you look in terms of making sense of um, of, of this quote unquote wonder boy, who was, of course, anything really but a wonder boy? I think, well, actually, I, I disagree on, on that point. I think that, like, we've seen a lot of strokes of genius, you know, from his from his early early childhood there that really did make him sort of enshrine in, in that in that in that image that we presented of him. But I think that. Uh, Delivering happiness was very instructive in many ways. And we actually um, spent a lot of time trying to, to figure out what made Tony tick and trying to make anyone trying to figure out what makes anyone tick can be a challenge in and of itself. But we did have a roadmap that he had laid out for us in that book that we could then go and take to the people who knew him well over the years, as Angel mentioned, there's actually a, uh, a very inst inst you know, instructive line in his book that we used uh, toward the end of our book when we were trying to answer that exact question, like what made Tony wake up in the morning and what got him through life? And there's a line where um, Tony in his, in the epilogue of his book asks, you know, what is the meaning of life and, and what are we all searching for and, and what is he searching for? And he answers that with, several other questions about how he's supposed to and he actually answers it by deflecting it and then just answering another bunch of questions and and then trying to figure out whether you know we're really on the pursuit of happiness or not and i thought that that ambiguity is actually something that was powerful for us to communicate was that no matter how hard we tried and how close we got to trying to figure out Tony, it still remains slightly out of reach for us, just as his own search for his own meaning of life seemed to also remain elusive. And I think that that was how we framed our finding there. But, um, you know, I, I will say that it also allowed us to use his voice very often throughout, this, throughout the book about how he thought about some things that I think that, you know, is, is often hard to do. Yeah, Angel, um, the New York Times, I'm sure you, you read the review of the New York Times. It suggests that um, there's more to his unhappiness than perhaps sometimes you reveal. It, it's bound up in a, a public health crisis of, uh, of mental illness. Is there some truth to that? Does say for all his intelligence and success and wealth, does he fit into a contemporary pattern, this seeming epidemic of ill health, mental ill health that's afflicted an entire generation, younger generation in particular, and has been particularly damaging, I think, in Silicon Valley amongst the tech elite? Right, exactly that point. I think amongst the tech elite, Tony's story can become a story that will be repeated um, if we don't learn from Tony's story. Um, and I think one of the key takeaways that we hope readers get from this book is that, I mean, there are many takeaways, right? But one of them is, you know, we treat people like Tony 
like Elon Musk, like Sergey Brin, all these tech founders as almost infallible. Um, we think that because they invented these products and they've amassed immense wealth that they're kind of bulletproof. And so we celebrate their wins and then we denigrate their failures. And we're not- Yeah, so they're, they're infallible until they're all too fallible. So we, we have it one way or the other, either they're all wrong or they're all right. And there doesn't seem to be much in between. Right, exactly. And um, it's almost like we, of course, we should hold them accountable to when they need to be held accountable. But at the same time, I think, you know, we also, I work in media. So of course, I see this happening every day in news headlines. But I think like one takeaway is just remember that these are all so humans and humans make mistakes and humans also need people to protect them. Like with Tony, he needed more people to tell him no. He needed more people to take a stand against him in, his, in the last year of his life. But we spoke to people who were present in the last year of his life, people who really cared about him. Um, and, you know, one of them described it to us as it was almost like groupthink in the sense that they all thought that Tony would get out of this okay, because after all, he's the Tony Shea. Um, and so it almost seems like all these people didn't, couldn't quite accept that this was a truly sick man who needed help, only because he had all this financial and tech success before. Um, so I think amongst the tech elite, especially, there was one source who said to us, you know, the only reason why I'm telling you everything that happened is in the hope of saving one person's life. Like if this can cause us to save another person's life, then it's all worth it. Um, so yeah, I do think there's some truth to that. David, um, you guys wrote a, a piece, I think for Forbes, on how his friends and family, quote unquote, milked millions in his drug-fueled final months. I'm not sure whether you chose that title. Does this entourage and even his family, do they bear some responsibility for this tragically young death of this man? I think... Uh... The answer to that is twofold. I mean, it, there's, it's, it's very clear at the end of the book, uh, Angel and I have a line in the story that says, you know, there were no heroes or villains uh, in Tony's story. And we took... Which we, annoyed the New York Times reviewer, as you can tell. I, I'm not sure whether indeed, she's yeah. right to be annoyed or not. I think she was looking for you guys to take a stronger position one way or the other. Right. And I think that that was a debate that Angel and I had at, at length. Uh, you know, we often were thinking about how we can possibly you know bring this to a close and whether it's our role to bring closure to the question of like who's to blame and i think that we, we both decided that if we could provide and present the facts um especially that we're not void of context you know historical context and also the the nuances that come from people's decision making processes in times like this um we felt that we could present um, a straightforward account of what occurred and then take a closer look at what we were trying to answer, which is, you know, what was the lessons of Tony's story about Tony? I think that that was, I think that blaming people was uh, less, um, it also took a secondary role. Well, I, I, okay, I take your point. So we can't blame the people, we can't blame Tony, we can't blame tech, blah, blah, blah. What, what, what lessons then are there? I mean, I think that here the lesson the lesson was, I mean, it, 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 if you're if you're looking at, at at Tony, I mean, 
he clearly was one of these figures that that got to the height of American success. And the only thing that he knew to do next was to just get bigger and grow more and scale, 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 and just acquire more. And there was obviously like a huge hole there in, in, in Tony's life that he wanted to, that he wanted to fill. And the only thing that he had by the end was just money. And that's what he was using to try. And this and is a, 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 a angel. There's a, there's a Gatsby S quality to this narrative. Um, was he missing a philosophy? We've done lots of shows on happiness. We did one, uh, to with a, an Australian writer, Wendy Seyfried, on why nihilism can make us happy, why we d- can't believe in anything. Other shows we've done on 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 the quality of Zen philosophy. W- Angel, is there a was that was there a shall we say a philosophical or a moral hole at the heart of Shay's life, perhaps as a reflection of this? hard-charging first-generation or second-generation immigrant family that he was brought up in to succeed, go to Harvard, make millions of dollars as a tech entrepreneur? Yeah, I mean, listen, he wrote a whole book called Delivering Happiness. He was singularly obsessed with the idea of finding happiness for himself and for others. He almost treated happiness like it was some source code that he had to break. And I think that the mistake that Tony made and a lot of people frankly make, especially when they come to immense wealth, is that they believe that adding things to their life is the code to happiness. When in reality, a lot of what happiness, I mean, even happiness is kind of a jaded word, but in reality, just finding contentness in your life is just taking stock of what is and realizing that it's enough. That's a Zen, more like a Zen philosophy, Angel. I mean, is there a tradition you think he might have benefited from? Well, we actually spoke to um, a psychotherapist who did work with Tony, and she wanted to encourage Tony to do more inner work, which is just to have him answer more reflective questions about his life. And she described to us that she saw Tony physically turn inward like a roly-poly, and that he was one of the most uncomfortable patients she's ever seen, and that she had to cut the session short because of Tony's refusal to answer those t- more inward reflective questions. And so I think that's just one example of Tony fighting that part in his life. And yeah, I think one lesson that we hope readers take away from this is that I think like the most tragic and ironic thing about Tony is that if you ask any of his friends, if you ask his family, if you ask his colleagues whether Tony was enough, they would say Tony was more than enough, but he didn't seem to feel that way. And so he kept on buying, he kept on building. In his last year of his life, he became obsessed with the idea of um, creating the next idea. Because if you think about it, in his 20s, he sold his first startup to Microsoft for for hundreds of millions of dollars. In his 30s, he sold Zappos for a billion to Amazon. In his 40s, he hadn't really come up with an idea that could top the last two brilliant ideas he had. And I don't think it's a coincidence that he passed away at 46 in the midst of trying to figure out what the next success was. But if you look at his life, he was successful enough. He just, he just didn't realize it. Uh, David, I know you in the book stress um, the centrality of Park, uh, Park City, Utah in the drama where he 
in a sense, retreated to. How, how does Park City uh, symbolize perhaps Shay's tragic life and perhaps in some senses the tragedy of American life more broadly? I mean, Park City is a, is a town of excess uh, in almost every definition. And I think that what we saw was until Tony moved with his entourage to Park City in 2020, I mean, he was living in an Airstream trailer park that he'd built, you know, in Las Vegas, uh, you know, surrounded by a lot of his best friends and work colleagues. And, you know, they'd be having nightly fires. And there was really an image of, you know, that this is a, a almost billionaire who lives among the people and is one of us. Well, it's not just lives among the people. There's a certain sort of childishness about this. I mean, the guy never, it, would it be fair to say the guy never basically grew up? He just remained an adolescent in his lifestyle and his mentality? I, I think it's very easy to draw a parallel to the Peter Pan syndrome, of course. I think that what we saw throughout his life was that he was always, we, we explicitly say this, that he was always recreating the uh, idea of the Harvard dorm room, which was the, really the first place in which he found happiness and freedom and a community that he felt that he fit he fit into. And so he, he recreated this when he moved to San Francisco. He recreated this when he moved to Las Vegas uh, by renting dozens of apartments in a single apartment building, having all his friends move in. And then he did the same thing again with the Airstream trailer park. So there was, we did see that cycle through, but Park City was like a different approach to that model in a, in a vastly more perhaps disturbing way in that he, you know, his main house that he lived in was a $15 million ranch where he had some people who he'd just recently met were, were staying in the master bedroom. He then bought another dozen properties in the neighborhood uh, for tens of millions of dollars where others were, were staying and living. And so he sort of turned the idea of, uh, you know, uh, the, the man, the, the layman, the image, he turned it on its head and was like, you're going to come and live with me in my castle. And, you know, people were very quick and willing to like take him up on that offer. And I think that beyond that, we saw that he was opening bar tab, like open bar tabs on Park City and, you know, everything seemed to... Well, but, uh, I, you know, I, I take all this, but it, I, I have to admit, it doesn't make me feel particularly... I mean, no one could celebrate the death of a, of a young man and all the rest of it, but it doesn't make me very sympathetic to him. Most people who struggle with the, the daily challenges of life, he, he was someone who just simply couldn't grow up. He couldn't get out of his dorm room and he tried to recreate that dorm room around him. Why should we be sympathetic to him? Why should we even care? He was he, he got too much money as a too young and, and he wasn't able to grow up. Isn't that basically the narrative here? I think I, I no, again I, I I push back on that because I think that what happened was he was he showed genuine uh, genuine signs and genuine uh, overtures of kindness throughout his his childhood and his early adult well, that life. That goes without saying. You can be kind and not grow up. But the but, but the, what happened was that it, you know in in our, in our in our reading of it was that at the age of twenty four you walk into a massive fortune. He he gets thirty or forty million dollars uh, at such a young age. What that did was for the for the majority of his relationships going forward that he created, there was a added element that most of us don't have to deal with in that many of the relationships that he created after he made his fortune involved money. And there was always a sense that he was the person in the room with the most money. And that 
warped relationships with his family, that warped relationships with his friends, and it also warped his relationship with himself. And it, it, it definitely is clear to us that there was something that happened before he made that fortune, that that initial streak of happiness that he was able to find in that Harvard dorm room that he just clung on to. And you can argue, yes, there was, as he got older, some of his friends as they grew up, he, he shed them or he had less to do with them because they were having families and having kids. And right. I mean, with, with these up. kind of kids who struggle to grow up, often they realize a degree of maturity through some sort of romantic attachment. Did he have any of those of any significance? Again, he's, 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 I would say that like most things that occurred in Tony Shea's life, they're unconventional. And, um, you know, he really, he gravitated towards polyamory and he's, he, he had multiple girlfriends often sometimes at the same time. And he, that was a, that was a scenario in which was an open secret, which um, was, you know, seemed to be like just a, this is Tony being Tony. And yeah, I mean, you call it polyamory. Some people would just say a lot of sex in a, in a sort of celebrity kind of way. Angel seems to me the only real in, interesting legacy of uh, say, apart from the fact that it was a sad life was his, championship of of what what's become known as holacracy at zappos this rethinking the organization of firms is there any truth to that what did you discuss in your book about tony's um commitment to transforming organizations so that they're they're the reverse of traditional hierarchies and everyone is empowered we did discuss that in the book um, and with holacracy, it's interesting because in theory, you are empowering every single employee to be totally responsible for their actions. But when you do that, you, I mean, there were no managers in the model of holacracy. And that actually complemented Tony's leadership style quite well, because frankly, he didn't like it. It didn't appear that he liked being a leader. He didn't like being the CEO. We think that he enjoyed the C- being the CEO up until things got a little tougher and he had to have hard conversations with employees or he had to potentially announce layoffs. Later on in his life, we saw that he wanted to shirk more and more away from being a real leader, which has to, when you're a leader, you need to deal with the hard issues as well. Um, so with Holacracy, I think it's still to be determined um, whether it's a system that works. The idea was if it worked at Zappos, then they could infiltrate Amazon, which remains one of the largest companies in the world. And, and the most hierarchical, you know, dominated. And the most hierarchical. And oh, yeah. charismatic. That could, way, that could be a way for Tony to um, leave a stamp um, on Amazon. More Did so he have much to do with Bezos? Did they spend much time together? Uh, say that one more time. Did he have anything to do much to do with Jeff Bezos? Well, when Jeff Bezos bought Zappos, he made a public video that you can still find on YouTube that basically said he really admired Tony, Alfred Lin, and Fred Mosler's leadership and what they created in Zappos. Um, when Jeff Bezos was interested in buying Zappos, he was having one-on-one meetings with Tony. Um, after the acquisition happened, uh, Based on our reporting, there wasn't too much interaction between the two. Mm. But when Tony passed away, Jeff Bezos was, was, well, one of many, but Jeff Bezos wrote very kind tribute messages to Tony. Well, I mean, everyone always 
right everybody was right. when someone dies uh, he probably right. could i mean I, i'm not great admirer of jeff bezos but on the other hand he's the reverse of tony he managed his own wealth and he 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 shows that you can get rich really fast maybe he was a little bit older when he became wealthy and i wonder uh angel in an odd way and he was married and he had kids right i, I, I wonder mean, although of course that marriage now has ended i wonder um whether in an odd way, the example of Tony's life is in itself an argument against holacracy, that he he needed to be managed. He needed a manager, a parent, a lover, friends, and he was always pushing that off. So in an odd way, the tragedy of his life disproves the, the principle of holacracy. I think that's a fair assessment. I also think that with Tony, when he was at his best, he always had a secondhand man whether that was Alfred Lynn or Fred Mosler, there was always somebody who could, um, for lack of a better phrase, control his whims. Um, somebody said to us, you know, Tony was a type of leader that would throw a thousand plates in the air. And Alfred Lynn would tell him, okay, Tony, choose, pick these two plates to focus on. And so Tony was the ideas person. He was the ideas guy. And he always needed somebody to, um, I guess, protect him from his worst impulses. And you see that character, you see that character missing, really missing in the last year of his life. Uh, David, um, congratulations on the book. And it's just been acquired by Justin Charner, distinguished uh, Hollywood uh, producer to, to a, a director to make a movie out of it. What kind of movie would you like to see of... Um, of, of of Shay's life would it do you think it needs to be a, a moral parable we don't want to turn it into a celebrity move a movie of excess do we no I think we've seen the story of excess time and time again though I do think that the story of Tony Shay is the modern day retelling of previous figures we've seen in the past who have succumbed to their own worst whims and desires and being managed to surround themselves with uh, people who didn't always have their best interests at heart. And, you know, we just saw this with Elvis just came out. We've seen Howard Hughes story told before. We've seen these stories told before, but never have we seen story told from the point of Silicon Valley and the fact that Silicon Valley is what drives most of the world today and it really feels like that tony's story has parallels with the modern retelling of of uh you know what happens when when people reach such brilliance where do they go next and when do they step over the line and what happens once they do angel let's end with you um this seems to me a very male story everyone you've talked about is male he surrounded himself with men he liked women to have sex with, but it doesn't seem as if he took them very seriously otherwise. Is there a, a male quality to this story too? Is there a male quality to this story too? How do you mean by that? Well, is it in a sense uh, a story about the excesses of American men? Um, <laughs> no, I don't think so. Um why are yeah. there no women then in the story? I mean, you haven't mentioned any women. He surrounded himself with men. I, I assume his mother was quite an influence in his life. His mother was an influence, but there were women in his life who did influence him. And I would say that some of his most trusted confidants 
um, throughout his life were actually women. So even though he didn't have a traditional um, partner and a wife um, or, you know, that one singular girlfriend, um, he, his assistants generally were women and those were the people that he trusted to do his every whim, whether that was conducting real estate or allegedly purchasing drugs for him. Um, with the girlfriends, we interviewed a few of the girlfriends and they knew him in ways intimately that the male sources did not know him in. And so I, I would say that women played an important role in his life. And I think like between David and I, that actually affected how we reported in some ways because um, it was just natural for um, Tony's former girlfriends to be more open to a female reporter. Um, and so because there were two of us, and I obviously am a woman, I think we were able to get parts of Tony that um, a purely male reporting team would not have been able to get. 